Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program... Our nation's K-12 schools, really all institutions, are grappling with ways to improve safety for students, educators, and support staff. Well, the Fulton County Schools District has a dedicated committee hoping to offer new solutions. And we'll get all the details when Superintendent Dr. Mike Looney joins me in just a moment. And we'll bring you an installment of WABE's The Heat Effect. Plus, voting rights for individuals with a prior conviction. It's different in every state. But what about here in Georgia? All those conversations coming up in just a moment. But first this, the Biden administration is permanently blocking the state's plan to divert Georgia's looking for health insurance away from the official Obamacare website. Previously, it was temporarily suspended, as we hear from Jess Mador. Governor Brian Kemp's Georgia Access Model Plan would have allowed the state to redirect consumers from the official healthcare.gov site to private broker and insurance company sites instead. The Trump administration had greenlit the plan to take effect next year, but advocates warned it could negatively impact access to the federal insurance marketplace. And the Biden administration has been reconsidering it and accused state officials of not cooperating with document requests. Now it's announced it's suspending the plan permanently. A spokesperson for Governor Kemp says his office is evaluating its options. Jess Mador, WABE News. In other news, Rudy Giuliani is due to appear before a special grand jury in Atlanta that is investigating whether former President Donald Trump and his allies illegally interfered in Georgia's 2020 elections. Yes, we are still talking about that. WABE's Raul Bali reports the judge had ordered Giuliani to appear Yesterday, Tuesday, August 9th, but that was delayed because of medical reasons. Lawyers for Rudy Giuliani say a recent heart procedure prevents him from traveling by plane. They presented a note from a doctor. Fulton County prosecutors used a recent tweet as evidence that Giuliani has been traveling. Judge Robert McBurney is now ordering Giuliani to come to Atlanta August 17th, saying that gives him plenty of time to get here even by bus. It is not clear if Giuliani is a target of the investigation into alleged election interference in Georgia. His lawyers say knowing the status could influence his answers to the special grand jury. Raul Bally, WABE News, the Fulton County Courthouse. Georgia's congressional delegation remains deeply divided politically, but they are in agreement on one thing. The state needs more workers. As Emil Moffitt reports, members of both parties spoke yesterday in Macon in an event hosted by the Georgia Chamber. Republican Congressman Buddy Carter says Georgia's worker shortage is not hard to miss. Right down the road, you see help wanted signs everywhere. Democratic Representative Carolyn Bordeaux says a significant reason for that labor shortage is the sharp drop in immigration since 2016. We are not getting the replenishment uh, from immigration that we've really built our businesses around. Georgia Chamber President Chris Clark says immigration reform is among his organization's top legislative priorities. He says he hopes discussions like the ones over lunch Tuesday will help. You know, people from opposite parties on the same stage, it forces them to recognize each other, have a deeper conversation. And hopefully, he says, they take that conversation back to Washington. Emil Moffitt, WABE News in Macon. Uh, get your motor running, or in this case, your electric motor. Advocates and officials are encouraging Georgia school districts to apply for funding to get electric school buses. Daniel Blackman is the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's regional administrator here in Atlanta. He says clean-up school, school buses will improve air quality and can have long-lasting effects on students and their families. These districts and these schools just pose a tremendous opportunity for us to really transform these communities, and that's really what it comes down to. 
He says Fulton and Gwinnett County School Districts have already applied for the shift to electric buses. Applications for the funding are open until August 19th. And finally, renaming nine U.S. Army posts that honor Confederate officers would cost about $21 million to rebrand everything from welcome marquees to water towers. That's according to the Naming Commission, which released its final report to Congress this week. Georgia's Fort Benning is on the list. Its renaming would cost just under $5 million. Why? Well, Henry L. Benning was a successionist and a racist. The commission contends that Benning once said he would rather be stricken with illness and starvation than see slaves given equality as citizens. The Naming Commission recommends renaming the Army Post after a married couple, Lieutenant General Hal Moore, who served in Vietnam and received the Distinguished Service Cross, and his wife, Julia, who prompted the creation of teams that do in-person notifications of military casualties. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues here from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Uvalde, Texas, Robb Elementary School, where we know late in May, 21 people were killed, including 19 children. Well, that building will be demolished and rebuilt. We've come to a point in our nation where school districts are grappling with ways to improve safety for all, and especially as relates to even active shooter drills. Now, Ken Trump, no relation to the former president, spoke with News Nation about active shooter drills and the debate regarding what works and what won't. Options-based training where you're saying to run everywhere creates a target-rich environment. Throwing things and attacking gunmen is unrealistic. As for implementing plans that could save lives. Lockdowns, police-controlled evacuations, sheltering in place, parent-student reunification, all of those drills work. Here in Georgia, the Fulton County Schools District has a, what they call a dedicated committee that's hoping to offer new solutions. And I'm joined now by Superintendent Dr. Mike Looney. Superintendent Looney, thanks for taking time. I appreciate it. Yes, good morning. Thank you for having me. It's always great to be on your show and to talk about what's happening across the district here in Fulton County. Let's begin here. Overall, you all just getting back to school. How are you feeling, Superintendent Looney, about the new school year? Well, we've had a really positive start. Um, our students and teachers are excited and enthusiastic. I've been out and visiting schools for the last two days and have nothing but uh, positive things to say about our staff members and our students. It's been a really positive opening. We are challenged with some vacancies um, mm-hmm. in s- several key positions, teaching positions, bus drivers specifically, um, but but we're we're making do with what we got right now. Actually, that was my next question. It was regarding there have been so many districts have talked about shortages from full-time educators to substitutes, bus drivers. This is a, you all, this is not lost on you all. How are you managing to cope with it? Have you had to be creative? Like I know another school district is, they've even asked some bus drivers if they can just to help out a little. Well, we have certainly been creative. We've had bus drivers helping with cleaning buildings. We've had staff members working in different parts of the district volunteering to be bus drivers. So we're all pitching in together. Um, the, the, the teacher shortage, the employee shortage that we have in public schools is, is getting more challenging. Mm-hmm. But our, our folks are very flexible and, and are able to adapt to a changing environment. We'll get through this together, but we have to continue to recruit people into the field of education. Well, recruiting, but let's back up a little bit, Superintendent Looney. Why do you think so many folks are leaving the teaching profession, just the whole landscape? And this is, and I, and especially since the pandemic, and I imagine that has a, a, a big part of it as well. Well, just to be honest with you, it's a very difficult time to be an educator. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nation seems to be polarized on lots of different issues. 
everybody, everybody seems to point their finger at teachers uh, and expect teachers to do, you know, everything from, from being a nurse, from being a, a parent, mm-hmm. from being a classroom teacher, uh, conflict uh, resolver, counselor. Teachers are tasked with a, a, a difficult task. Thankfully, here in Fulton County, we have uh, some wonderful teachers, but it is a difficult time to be in education. And more people now are deciding that education is not the career field that they want to go in. I think it's because of perceived lack of support. Perceived lack of support. You've been on that side. Uh, what, if you could, if you could just, and I know you wish you could, snap your fingers and give educators what you felt they needed, what you know that they needed, besides maybe a, a compensation increase, what does that look like? Well, as I interview people leaving the profession, as I talk to people joining the profession, the one thing that strikes me is certainly our teachers deserve and need more money, but that's not why they're leaving. Mm -hmm. That's not why people are choosing not to be in the profession. It's really about how uh, people perceive uh, teachers and about whether or not teachers are respected uh, by their broader community. You know, uh, you can turn on the on the news almost any day and there will be something derogatory about the education profession. And I know that the teachers that I have had the pleasure of working with take that very personally. They deserve and, and require the respect of the communities they serve. In, and oftentimes that's missing. These external factors then, are we talking about a, a wide range of factors here? Too much political influence, too much of something else. I want you to break that down for our listeners. Can yeah, you so example? it's a little bit of everything. Yeah. So certainly politics has made its way into the classroom. Uh, you see that across the country. Georgia is, is not uh, you know, unique to, to what's happening on, mm-hmm. on the political front. But also, uh, quite frankly, you know, teachers um, are, are challenged by parents more often than not. I know that when I grew up, the teacher was always right. And now uh, it seems to me that oftentimes when there's disagreement from the home to the teacher's classroom, uh, there's a presumption that the teacher is wrong and mm-hmm. the child is right. And that's simply not true either. So it's about relationship. It's about treating others with dignity and respect. And unfortunately, in our country, we're, I, I believe that we're just in a time where uh, that's not the rule. I had the pleasure, full disclosure, I came out and spoke to one of your uh, high schools uh, before the school year ended, and I had a, a great time there with the students. And you mentioned that students require so much that perhaps educators and the district can't provide, but you know, because you've been in education for a long time, that because of other systemic and ongoing issues and challenges and inequities, households vary. So for some students, and for a lot of students, they need those wraparound services from a school district like Fulton County. Do you have absolutely. enough support in that area? Well, absolutely. We, you know, we, we have safe centers at schools. We have schools doing all kinds of additional uh, things with different partners to try to support our students in, in a myriad of ways to provide wraparound services. And I think school systems across the region are doing the same thing. So I, kudos to all of the educators that are doing that. I think the challenge really is to, to the other social service agencies, mm-hmm. uh, whether they're government, quasi-governmental or nonprofit, really, you know, the school, the school districts can't do it alone. Mm-hmm. So we need the social service agencies, uh, the child the Department of Children's Services and, and nonprofit entities to come and partner with us to do that work. Uh, it's impossible to teach students effectively if they don't feel safe and secure in school if they don't have their basic needs met outside of school. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, our primary mission is to teach them and to make sure that they are learning. And uh, we have to provide those additional supports for learning to occur, but we can't do it alone. You know, we're going to shift for a moment because this is something that i not not trying to age you, Superintendent Looney, but I know when you started, you know, you think about Columbine, Sandy Hook, Parkland, Uvalde, and you think about when you started your career in education, and now that districts have to come up with a mass shooting plan or an active shooter plan, or have we know about security in general in terms of for the safety of the kids as it relates to you know keeping students from maybe bringing something they shouldn't be bringing into the to school. But now you've got these external factors as well. Did you ever think 
you would be dealing with this as a superintendent. And Columbine was back in 1999. Well, absolutely not. Um, it's not the America that I grew up in. But I will say our schools are simply, you know, a reflection of the communities that we operate in. And so uh, it's unreasonable to expect that guns won't make their ways in schools uh, if guns are present in the broader community and easily accessible. So we're simply a reflection of what's happening. Certainly, we're going to do everything we can. We're committed uh, to maintaining a safe environment for our students and staff. At the same time, we're also committed to making sure that our schools feel like they're welcome places. Mm -hmm. The last thing that we want to do is, is put big, tall fences up around and, you know, put 100 police officers in school because that doesn't that doesn't send the message to our students that school is a safe place. Well, let's focus for a moment then obviously on your schools. Do you all have, I know in some districts, they have their own police departments. They have a resource officer maybe that's not available at every school, but they're part of a region that they quote-unquote patrol. In terms of security, what is in place at Fulton County? Uh, thank you for asking. Yes, we do have our own post-certified uh, police officers employed in, in Fulton County Schools. Our police force is close to 100. Um, we also have campus security associates, which are not post-certified police officers, but they provide security on the campuses where police officers are not present. We also have a, a police officers that are patrolling uh, across the district, investigators. So we certainly have that presence. But we also know that while that may serve as a deterrent, most often that is in response to something that has happened. And so we are putting the same amount of attention and focus on how do we prevent those types of strategies or tra tra tragedies. How many students in your district, Superintendent Looney? Right at 90,000 students. And 100 officers, and then you have campus security associates. That's correct. We're just under 100 officers, but, but we aspire to get to them. I don't think I need to ask. I'm going to. Do you feel that that's enough? Well, I will say this. It's a balancing act. I, you know, I think having police officers is critically important. I also think having additional supports and strategies in place, such as social workers and counselors, mm -hmm. wraparound services for students. Uh, we're doing a lot in the area of conflict resolution um, and, and, and that kind of work to make sure that we that police officers are there for safety mm -hmm. and able to respond, but not as the only measure. we have. Your campus security associates, are they armed? They are not. But every school at least has a campus security associate if they don't, if you don't have an officer there. Yes, we have one of three things. We either have an officer or officers or our larger high schools have more than one police officer, campus security associates, or we have officers that are patrolling um, various elementary schools. Now, in addition to that, we have been working with all of our municipalities mm -hmm. to increase their patrol function and visits to school campuses. So more increased presence in all of our campuses. Have you and your team, you all assessed your overall plan of action if there was a call of a shooting or an active shooter? And I imagine that after Uvalde especially, did you have to take a hard look at that? And have y'all made changes? And if so, what are they? Great question. So I will say that safety and security are the first item on the superintendent's agenda when, when I meet with all of my executive leaders. We also uh, keep that on the agenda with all of our school-based leaders. Our school board um, has just been so incredibly supportive and focused on school safety. They have just most recently authorized me to develop a plan to spend $6 million more than the original budget called for on additional safety and security measures. We're, we're developing a plan for the expenditure of those funds as well. One of the things that I know frustrates parents in the broader community is we don't share the contents of our safety plan on purpose. Mm -hmm. We don't want to equip a bad actor with any information that might assist them and, and committing some sort of crime. With that being said, I, I truly believe that we are positioned uh, in a reasonably well place as it relates to being prepared for an unfortunate event. I, and, and honestly, I don't think it's if, I really think it's when and, and how widespread the harm will be. So we, we approach every single school day as this could be the day and are we ready? 
If you just join us, I'm in conversation with Fulton County Schools District Superintendent Dr. Mike Looney, and we're talking about the district's safety and security plan. You all had this, this dedicated committee. Is this part of this plan? You and I want to make sure I heard you. You're getting, you're going to use six million dollars more to address your overall for additional safety. And I know when someone hears that six million, they think, my goodness, Superintendent Looney, we could probably put that towards those wraparound services or services for students that require special needs. But this is critical right now. Absolutely. And, and, and just so our, your listeners know, we are also spending money on those additional needs. Um, but we've identified opportunities in our district and we'll be sharing those with our safety, our standing safety committee uh, to make sure that they agree with our strategy moving forward. Uh, we, we know that school safety and security is everybody's business. It's just not just law enforcement. It's not just, um, you know, our campus security guards or officers, and it's not just our principals, but it's everybody's business. And so we've been teaching for a number of years now. If you see something, say something, uh, you know, even if it's nothing, it's better to run that lead down, uh, pursue it to find out if there's any merit to a potential uh, violent act in any of our schools. Uh, it's always better to be safe than sorry. So. You just told me you don't want to share the entire plan. You don't want folks to know, but I know you get questions from parents. What can you share? Are we talking about additional cameras? Are we talking about more weapons detecting? What can you share? Sure. Well, I will say that we are uh, in the process of hiring additional personnel, Mm -hmm. uh, whether that's campus security associates or law enforcement or a combination thereof. We have invested in state-of-the-art security surveillance equipment across the district. But we're gonna, we're gonna go back and, and look at that and see if we can do additional investments. Um, we are also are partnering with the district attorney's office and her staff working on programming that teaches youth how to do conflict resolution, how to avoid uh, you know, putting yourself in a position that you can harm somebody else or be harmed. And then clarifying you know, what happens if I do commit a violent act. Mm-hmm. We have taken a no-nonsense, um, hard line on, on these type of issues. If you bring a weapon to school, then you're being expelled and you're being charged. And so we want to make sure that students understand that there's no reason for them to bring a gun to school because school is a safe place. And secondly, if they are found with a weapon, um, you know, that there's there are going to be harsh consequences that come with that. So you're dealing with making sure, obviously, students and, and educators and staff are safe and secure inside and preventing students from bringing in any type of weapons. But then also there's that external factor. Are you giving one, are you giving one or the other a little bit more attention in terms of funding or this overall plan will, will, for what you hope, tackle all of this? Well, once again, you know, security as it relates to schools is continually continuing to evolve. Technology is continuing to create, to create, uh, our, to be, be a more dominant uh, part of campus security. So if you think about uh, a school campus, think about it in concentric circles. So our first priority is to keep anybody with intent to harm away from school campus. Mm-hmm. And so we do everything from monitoring social media, working with other law enforcement agencies to keep bad actors away from school grounds. Second, if they, if they do come to the school or intend to come to school, do everything we can to prevent them from actually coming on campus. And so we do that by monitoring. We have personnel dedicated to monitoring our security surveillance cameras all the time. And so we can tell, we know when a person enters campus and when they leave campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, we then focus on if they do get on campus, how do we prevent somebody from, from getting in the building? And how, how are we notified if somebody's getting in the building? And so I won't share the details about that, but we sure. have strategies in place for that. And then finally, uh, we have strategies and processes in place. If someone does get in the building, how do we uh, mitigate risk, minimize damage, and respond as quickly as possible? And I think in all of those areas, we're continuing to make improvement. And uh, overall, we're in a pretty good place uh, to be as it relates to our overall security camera or security uh, plan. I'm curious how often I know during the pandemic, superintendents throughout the region, they had conference calls. You all talked about procedures and protocols, what was working, what wasn't working as related to the pandemic. And now this is is another area that's that's, it is a health issue. Are you pretty friendly with Cobb County Superintendent uh, Chris Ragsdale? 
I know Chris uh, professionally. I, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say we're friends, but we're professional colleagues. And um, I follow the decisions he makes. He follows the decisions I make. We, as just as an entire region, actually collaborate quite a bit on a variety of topics. What do you make? This is, and I want you your opinion because you're someone you're in the same capacity that that district. Now the school board voted um, that would allow some employees. Now we're not talking teachers and staff, but or those who supervise classrooms, but some employees to carry weapons in schools who are not security or author or you know an authorized personnel of law enforcement not asking you to grade that but do you like I mean, would you like that policy do you agree is that a policy you would want well i can't speak to what's good for Cobb county but sure. what i can tell you is in fulton county schools i have no intentions of recommending that um non-post-certified law enforcement agencies to anybody but them bringing weapons on campus um, i'm a retired marine mm-hmm I know what it means uh, to, to hold a weapon, to shoot a weapon, to defend yourself. And until you're faced uh, with some sort of conflict where you have to use that weapon, you don't know how a person is going to react. And our educators got into this profession to teach because they love children. Um, they, I don't believe, got into this profession so that they could carry a weapon and potentially uh, have to use that weapon on school campus. So I don't foresee that happening in Fulton County under my tenure. Have you had anyone bring that up to you and say, hey, Superintendent Luna, just maybe something to think about? Did you have people say, hey, look at Cobb County over here? Yes, ma'am. Our, our wider community is not shy about sharing their perspective about what's in the mm-hmm. best interest of any school district. And so uh, we, get that, we get that kind of communication on a regular basis, uh, pros and cons on every topic. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, I have to, as the CEO of the organization, I have to make what I believe the best recommendation for the Fulton County school system to our board. And our board has the option of supporting those recommendations or going in a different direction. As we begin to wrap up, Superintendent Looney, you told me just a moment ago, now you all have this mindset of we have to operate when we wake up that perhaps something could happen. It could be a mass shooting. It could be an incident where two kids are in a shootout. You have to prepare for this like it could happen. How do you deal with that? How do you deal with that personally? That this is what you are, when you just said, and everyone says this, our main goal is to educate, keep our kids safe and our educators and our staff. But this is the mindset that you're waking up with every day. Well, it's a heavy burden to carry for all for all educators. Um, every day that goes by where there's not an incident, uh, I'm, I'm thankful and prayerful. Um, you know, it's, it's we're, we're living in unique times. And so I, I personally am invigorated by our team's willingness to lean in on this issue, to stay focused, and to do everything that we reasonably can to protect um, our students and staff. And I think the word reasonable is important because, once again, you know, we're not going to make all students walk through metal detectors and, and put, you know, big tall fences with barbed wire on top of them. Mm-hmm. We want our schools to be places where the community is welcome, where our students feel welcome and wanted and worthwhile. And that's a difficult balancing act in these times. Your policy as it relates to students bringing any type of weapons, I want to be clear because I have a listener that has a question in terms of, are you just talking about guns? Are you also talking about mace or, or, you know, anything else? Perhaps a student feels they need to protect themselves from another threat of violence. But every, I imagine that every instance could be different. Or is it an automatic expulsion here? So, so bringing a weapon to a weapon to campus, a weapon that will do harm to somebody else, um, is is something that's going to result in disciplinary action and a recommendation, not an automatic expulsion, but a recommendation for expulsion hearing. So students are entitled to due process. I will say, uh, independent of that, if a student brings a firearm to school mm-hmm. or a weapon that uh, you know a large knife or a machete with the intent doing harm they will one be recommended for expulsion immediately and two uh, we will do everything in our power to make sure that they are charged um, by local law enforcement agencies and are adjudicated in the court system you mentioned a while ago in terms of as long as you're ceo and superintendent of fulton county schools district you're not going to allow anyone who's not authorized to carry a weapon you don't believe you don't support that how long do you want to be superintendent? Is any of this grading on you? We talked about the educators. You've been doing this for a while. 
Well, this is my 18th year as a school superintendent, and I'm smart enough to know that school superintendents are employed by boards of education, and they always are at liberty to, to choose a different leader. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how much longer I'll be here. I will say that I'm very happy here. I think there's a lot of work to do here, and I think we're doing good work. Um, hopefully, I will retire from Fulton County Schools as the superintendent. But while I'm here under my tenure, I will not recommend that employees that are not certified post officers bring weapons on campus. Fulton County Schools District Superintendent, Dr. Mike Looney. Superintendent Looney, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, yes, ma'am. Thank you. And Closer Look returns in just a moment, but we pause for a second to bring you an installment of the heat effect from our WABE newsroom. Now, we know it's hard to find relief from the Georgia heat, and we know that nice, cool air conditioning, well, it does bring relief. But there's a problem, too. Many Georgians, especially those in low-income households, simply do not have air conditioning or can't afford to run the A.C. As we hear from Emily Jones, that's not just uncomfortable, it's dangerous. On a brutally hot day in Savannah, a group of seniors is cooling off in their local community center in West Savannah. Mahogany Bowers, the founder of local nonprofit Blessings in a Book Bag, is here with some refreshment, juice, water, and today, a little something extra. Right? Who else needs a fan? Just a box fan that you put in the house. Juanita Washington needs one. She doesn't have central air in her house. Which I have the window air condition, you know, in certain rooms. She's been running those window units day and night in the hot weather. This spring, she enrolled in a utility assistance program that's paying her electric bills. Without that help? No, I don't think I would be running it as much, and my daughter or somebody will have to help me pay that bill. It's a common problem here. Running an air conditioner makes the power bill skyrocket. That's why Bowers gives away fans, which are cheaper to run, even though they often just move hot air around. She says that's still better than trying to breathe stagnant hot air. That wet, muggy heat, I mean, it's literally like somebody took a wet blanket and put it over your face. It's a reality people are facing throughout Georgia. Climate change has made summers hotter, and it's going to keep getting worse. For those without air conditioning to escape the heat, it's also more deadly. Brian Stone of Georgia Tech says hotter temperatures mean more heat exhaustion and heat stroke. And heat stroke is much like uh, a conventional stroke that we've all heard of. It it is a robbing the brain of oxygen, um, largely because you're robbing the brain of blood. And so that is a that's a really deadly issue. In Atlanta, close to 95% of households have central air. But Stone says many people that have AC don't use it for fear of high power bills. And in some parts of the city, as many as 20% of households don't have central air. And we find these households are clustered. Um, They're clustered in lower income, often communities of color, uh, that that do not have air conditioning um, and, and therefore are exposed to the greatest heat risk just during normal hot weather in the summer. Those same neighborhoods tend to be hotter overall because they have fewer parks and trees. And residents often have more underlying health issues due to lack of adequate health care and poor air quality and myriad other problems. It's like whatever dimension you look at, risk is amplified in these communities. Assistance programs like the one that pays Juanita Washington's power bills do exist to help people afford AC, but they're often already full. Stone says it's also important to address the problem at the community level. In addition to providing households with air conditioning, which increasingly is going to be critical to do, we can cool down the neighborhoods too. That could mean steps like planting trees, though it takes years for them to grow big enough to provide enough shade. In the meantime, Stone says cities need more cooling centers. In Savannah, Bauer says the people she works with know it's getting hotter, and they know humans are causing it. We know that when the azaleas start to bloom, okay, this is this season coming in. Now you see azaleas blooming when they're not supposed to bloom. She says it's hard to worry about climate change when people are struggling with their immediate needs, like putting food on the table. But the problems go hand in hand. The longer humans keep emitting carbon dioxide, the worse the heat will get. And it's going to harm those in poverty the most. 
Emily Jones, WABE News, Savannah. And this story is part of a partnership with Chris.org. And if you want to learn more about our heat series, it's easy. Just head to WABE.org slash heat. We're back in a moment. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Here's the number, 5.2 million Americans. Now, that's an estimate. That's an estimate of a number of folks in 2020 who were prohibited from voting due to laws governing those convicted of felony offenses. Now, depending on the state, the process for restoring voting rights, well, it varies. And all this is according to, to the sentencingproject.org. Now, There are some states which restrict voting rights for some or all individuals, even after they've served their prison sentence and they're no longer on probation or parole. And get this, such individuals make up over 58 percent of the entire disenfranchised population. Now, Georgia has gone back and forth and changed some of its restrictions. And to be quite honest, it's a little confusing because some of y'all have even emailed me. But there are various requirements and circumstances. And we know this is a big election year, so we're going to talk all about this. Let's welcome to the program Doug Amar. He's executive director of the Georgia Justice Project. Director, welcome. Thank you. Let's begin with this because with organizations like yours and others, and they say, well, this is you are disenfranchising those who have maybe served their time. You know, they're reentering society, but there are all these circumstances, and it shouldn't be that complex. I'm asking you, and I, and I probably know the answer to this, through your lens, you see that it shouldn't be so complex. That's true. There's a lot of confusion out there, a lot of misperceptions. And actually, um, what's really moved the needle in perception is the movement around the country, even in the southeast and Florida more recently. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I want to just set really clear is that if you have a felony conviction, you can vote in Georgia. If your sentence is complete, that is that simple. Okay, well, let's, let's stop there. Okay, but if your sentence is complete, complete. That's correct. Now, in terms of what makes a sentence complete, because once you leave a facility doesn't mean your, quote, sentence is complete. Am I correct? That's true. So, yeah, read. <laughs> so uh, sentence complete means if a judge said, uh, I'm sending to you the five years on probation, when those, uh, you have to finish those five years, your sentence has to be over. It could be five years in prison and five years on probation. That's a 10-year sentence. Mm-hmm. You have to be through with that sentence for it to be complete. So, yes, being out of jail or out of prison does not mean it's complete. It means once you're, as we often say, once you're off paper, which means you have no obligation to the state through uh, pardons or parole or probation, then you can vote. So in Georgia, you've got to be, quote, off paper. Yes. Does it also include if there is restitution that needs to be paid? So this is an interesting point. So uh, being off paper, is a, is a, it becomes a, that's become a, a point of contention mm-hmm. around the country a little bit. Georgia has been really clear. There's two sentences in the Georgia Constitution that says if you're convicted of a felony of moral turpitude, you cannot vote as long as you're under sentence. That's all really the parameters. So the question often is becomes when you're exactly right, when are you when is your sentence complete? Mm-hmm. I can tell you that the, the the Department of Community Supervision, which is probation and parole, if you have not paid your they will not cut you loose if you still owe restitution. If you're still in that window of time, they're going to say, if you owe restitution under Georgia law, it's not complete. Now, if you finished your 10 years and you still haven't paid your restitution, your sentence is complete because your 10 years ran. So what I'm trying to say is completion is really determined by one main agency in the state, and that's the Probation Parole Department, a.k.a. DCS, Department of Community Supervision. That's for the entire state of Georgia. That's right. 99% of all felony sentences they manage because very few people get convicted of a crime, go to prison, and they call it maxing out. Uh, Very few people max out of the Department of Corrections. They actually are on paper when they come back into community. So DCS is the agency that really manages that. I want to be clear. 
director. And we brought you all on because we figured you all are the experts in this. They emphasize paroles and part, they won't talk to us. But you're saying now, I want to be clear, even if you have served the physical detainment part of your sentence, but if there's restitution or if you're still have to serve, if you're on probation, you cannot vote? That's that's basically if you're still if you're still have an obligation to the state. And usually for most people, that means you're still have a probation officer. You're still reporting. You still have to call in. You still have some obligation to the state. What becomes confusing. So, so let me stop there before I get to where it gets a little fuzzy. I mean, that, yeah, that, you should see the emails. <laughs> they're I've got coming two in. already. Oh, they're coming in. Yeah. So what what becomes confusing is a lot of people who stop reporting like a probation uh, under some state laws they don't want people reporting forever so they say listen you have five years on probation we'll watch you for two years if you're doing well uh, we won't see you again and then people say well i'm i'm no longer reporting am i still under sentence well you Probably, yes. If you had five years to serve on probation, you served two when they were coming to check on you every month or you were checking on them every month, uh, you're still under sentence for those five years. Hmm. So, But people get really confused, like, when is it over? And that's sort of the question you're really asking. When is it over? Absolutely. So let me say this has been an issue for a long time. I can dive into that, but let me let you ask your question before I dive well, into that. No, go ahead and dive because okay. my question probably is, it means you need to dive. Okay. All right. So I'm... I'm for me personally, I've been doing this work a long time in the criminal justice system. And I, I'm going to tell you that, that in uh, many years, there's been nothing up until a couple of years ago that was that you could ever find out when your sentence was actually complete. Mm-hmm. And we've been working on front end of the system, representing people, following folks through the system on reentry for 32 years, 36 years for the organization. And I've noticed years and years ago that there was nothing the state created up until recently that you could say, is my sentence over? I mean, like, and and even if you completed your sentence, let's say it's all been done for a year ago, five years, ten years ago, and you walk into the courthouse, you walk. I mean, prior to this, you say, well, "Give me the piece of paper that says I'm done." There was nothing. I mean, there was really nothing created by the system that said you were done. Actually, very frustrating when it came. Except to, for being in the system that hopefully would say you are done. Right, but the system never issued you a piece of paper that said you were done, up until very recently. So this issue of how can I know my sentence is complete? Is, is been a critical one. And we've run into it for not just for voting, for housing, for jobs, because we've had employers who work with folks that, listen, I'll, I'll hire you, but if you're going to have to go back on probation, I don't want that hassle. I don't want them showing up. Mm-hmm. Prove to me you're not on probation. And we've had clients say, I can't prove I'm not on probation. We've even run down probation officers five, 10 years ago, saying, well, you write, sign this letter that says they don't have to, they're off probation, because there was nothing heretofore created. So a few years ago, working with DCS, we, uh, we asked them about this generally. So would you all be willing to create a document that, mm-hmm. that regulate and systematically says when someone is complete? And they do, they did, and they do. It's called a certificate of sentence completion. And anybody who's ever been under felony sentence of, of any kind, probation, Department of Corrections, you can walk into any DCS office and say, I was once under your old supervision. Mm-hmm. And you, that's the Department of Community Services, community, community supervision. Supervision, okay. And they say, and you can say, I need that piece of paper that you all have – that I am no longer under sentence. To your knowledge, though, because they will probably rely on the, the – whomever they speak with, the representative, will rely on going to the old computer mm-hmm. and putting the person's name in. Mm-hmm. Is that up da- – I'm assuming that's updated and that there won't be any issues there because we – well, that's a whole other show in terms <laughs> of <laughs> – you know that, that's right. No, I, I think we see a lot more errors happen from like the like sheriff's offices and warrants, and people get picked up for stuff that has already been resolved. DC, the state system is much, I would say, tighter than all the the proliferation of the thousands of police agencies and sheriff's offices that have to keep their records up to date and often mm-hmm. don't. You have one agency that's in charge of the, for the entire state, and our experience, I would say, is that they know exactly when you're supposed to report, or if you're under supervision, or if you're not. One state agency. And they will, you go to any office, no matter where you were under supervision, and they will issue you one of these certificates. I have a listener who says that they know an individual that had completed felony, sorry, I'm back up. I know someone that completed the felony, the, completed the sentence for a felony in one county, but not another. Is that an issue? I, I sure. think so. Sure, because you're still under, that person is still under supervision, mm-hmm. no matter, it's not about the county, it's about the state. And actually, if you're under a felony uh, sentence from another state, you can't register in Georgia. So you're, really? Yeah. So it's under, if you're wait under. Wait a minute, wait a yeah. minute. As kids say, wait a minute. <laughs> so if you 
if you have a past conviction from another state and you've completed that sentence, you're well, fine. You're fine. If you're under, if you got a case in te- Tennessee, you move to Georgia while you're still reporting on probation, you're still under a felony sentence. Even if it's just probation? Yeah, because that's you probation. You can't vote? That's correct. You can't vote as long as a sentence, you're under sentence. And so if you think about under sentence being the opposite of off paper, what to say a lot of times on the street, I'm off paper, meaning I don't have to, nobody's got paper on me anymore. Um, those two are the opposite of each other. So even if I'm on, uh, off, I'm on paper, I'm under sentence from Texas, Tennessee, North Carolina, California, and I move to Georgia, and my probation is transferred or not, if they say I'm still under sentence, that state where the, where the case originated, then under the Georgia Constitution, under Georgia law, I am under a felony sentence. How many states have this type of provision? Actually, it's, it's actually the majority of states. 19 states have a provision like Georgia's. And I, I read that Maine is, is like the Maine is the place you want to be. <laughs> There's only a handful of states where it doesn't matter. You can vote, which is mostly in the New England, almost all in New England, actually. Uh, that's right. It's it, this is, but some restrictions and the the, the state the country is sort of a a, a mismatch a, a cross section of different ways they limit the right to vote based on your involvement in the criminal justice system. Georgia's actually um, at the time at least when Georgia's has not changed that much at all for a long time a hundred years, and unlike our South Carolina, North Carolina, even Florida around us, there was a, a very clear line. Some states it gets very fuzzy. Well, let me ask you this, Doug. Are there some states where even if they're similar like Georgia, but maybe the process is a little bit different. I have a listener who says, and I'm just going to read it, it, the headline, that's unacceptable. Why the hell would someone, forgive me, why the <laughs> hell would someone have to go to DCA to get that? No one wants to return back to somewhere they were incarcerated. They should make sure they receive that documentation during release. But obviously during release, you have all these other right. provisions that you have to adhere to, so it's a lot. Well, we have seen, actually, with our clients, because we follow our folks, uh, we have seen DCS start to issue these letters. The federal system does this, by the way. Federal probation does this. Mm-hmm. They will send you a letter and say, You're, it's over, and here's a piece of paper that documents that. And in the letter DCS now issues to people, when it's over, they say, and you can vote. if this is, You can now vote. And they say a number of things. So you, that that's a recent phenomenon that mm-hmm. DCS is doing, the, the probation and parole department. But they are starting to do that. So you don't have to go ask them. They are sending it to you when it's done. What would you like for Georgia to adopt? What is there a, <laughs> oh, <I can't. laughs> is there a state that you would like Georgia to mirror? You know, and you can understand folks listening saying, look, oh. you know, these are the circumstances for, you know, which you have to adhere to because of your conviction and so, I mean, I'm, listen, you have to pay taxes whether you're convicted or not. You, in fact, uh, you, if you're in prison, that jurisdiction can use the fact that you're in that prison as a part of the population for that jurisdiction to increase their tax revenue under the federal standards. You're, ta- yeah, I mean, this is, that's a whole, uh, this is called prison gerrymandering. It's crazy. Um, but the point is, I don't, th- personally, I think if you're a citizen and you're on the street, I mean, you're a citizen, you, you should be able to vote and whether you're incarcerated or not. Well, and, and I do want to clear because someone just tweeted that we know 19 is not the majority of the states. We know that. But uh, uh, you're saying it's not it's the majority. There is no other grouping classification bigger than 19 when it comes to this. That's what so I'm, it's I a large. It up. is the majority of the states. There are more people who function like Georgia with regard to this issue than any other grouping. And so the other states are either grouped by either there are no restrictions or I think right. Ma- Maine and maybe a, you mentioned New England states. Right. And then there are some states where you have just very limited it doesn't matter if you are on parole, or pro, pro, if you're paroled or probation, what have you, you, you can still vote. Some states honor that, right? Right. Like a, like the next highest grouping is 18, and then you can vote if you're not incarcerated. So it, we, we, so those states would, if you're still under sentence, meaning you're on paper, you're on probation or parole, you can still vote as long as you're not in jail or prison. What would you like to see? Well, I, I, I think everybody should be able to vote. I mean, it's, it's just – it's – all these issues have taken away the right to vote based on the criminal justice system. It's a long, terrible legacy of the impact and really, you know, the, the racial and disparate impact of the criminal justice system. Any idea in terms of numbers, how many yes. folks we're talking about here? Yes, Doug? I do. I'm glad you asked the numbers question. That's what I do. You know, I love numbers. That's right. So so this is an interesting and it's a moving target in the right direction, by the way, for Georgia. I'm, I am an optimist, I should say. So I'm, I'm glad to talk about good things. So um, in Georgia right now, essentially people who are 
disenfranchised because of the criminal justice system um, is right around, um, I'm gonna make sure I get this right, uh, uh, um, it's people who are in prison under a felony sentence, which is about 47,000, plus about 141,000 who were under felony probation that's not first offender. Um, and this gets a little technical. Okay, so let so I, I think let's talk about those who have what we because we've been framing it under those who have a prior conviction, felony conviction. Fe- felony conviction. So said, said so let me just put it this way: mm-hmm. there's about 650,000 people in Georgia, according to the data we get from the state, that says who people who have a felony conviction. Mm-hmm. 450,000 of those people, roughly, can vote. Actually, uh, because um, so the people who can't vote of that 450 uh, of that larger 650, the people who can't vote who are in prison under a felony sentence or on parole or probation under a felony sentence. So can you extrapolate for those that on a parole or probation? Yes. What's that number? Yes, I, that number I should have. The, the number on parole is actually pretty small. It's I, b- I believe less than 20,000. It's okay. about 140 to 150,000 who are on felony probation. Hmm. Doug Amar, Executive Director of the Georgia Justice Project. If folks have any questions. Please you go to our website. We have a whole page on voting. It's gjp.org slash voting. Uh, and we produce a lot of materials, a lot of education, a lot of presentations. Happy to share. Thank you so much. That is it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are LaShawn Hudson, Daniel Razel, and Pat St. Clair. And our engineer today was Daniel. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. So send me an email, as you all have been doing the whole show, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's show, it's online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. So subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. From Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.